You tell your father Gary Hamilton's back in town. And I'll see him at sundown. Oh, what'd you say your name was? Gary Hamilton. You a friend of my father's? Yeah! Who? This is episode number 74, and finally, uh, well, <laughs> I meant to do this months ago, but it's taken until now to get uh, John Hudson back in front of the microphone so that we can start talking about another Antonio Margariti film. So, welcome, John Hudson. It is about time. I thought you didn't care anymore. I've sent flowers, I've well, sent I candy. Don't, I, don't, I don't care. That's, I sent that's ventriloquist true. dummies. <laughs> So that was you. The Mortimer Snurd I thought would melt your heart and win me back in your good graces. And it, it bit, no, it, it did not. It bit me on the groin. I don't know that I think that, that, that was a bad idea on your part. Oh, man. Mind. Anyway, we are back to do another Antonio Margariti film. If you remember back months ago, we made the announcement of which one we were going to cover next. Uh, it was Mr. Hudson's turn to choose. And he decided after uh, the Spaghetti Western Vengeance that we covered last time that he wanted to go in a different direction and cover another Spaghetti Western. That's right. I mean, nothing if not imaginative <laughs> at all times. <laughs> so we jump, uh, we jump forward two years to 1970 to this film, which is called And God Said to Cain, which is a mouthful when it comes to titles. But... Um, uh, interestingly enough, I think fits the movie in a very intriguing way, and one in which I'm not sure a lot of people have ever talked about. We'll get to that eventually. The top-of-the-line thing to talk about in this film is the surprising star of the movie, Klaus Kinski. He's quite the heartthrob in this one. <laughs> <laughs> he, but, but the thing is, I mean, he is a good leading man. It's not as if Klaus, Klaus Kinski never, you know, headlined a movie. I mean, Aguirre, The Wrath of God... Well, let's just say, you know, every Werner Herzog film he mm -hmm. ever made. Um, um, but Venom? Wasn't that... He wasn't the lead in that one. Was he not? No, no. He... No, that's Tom Hardy, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Wrong film. Different film. <laughs> oh, as a sideline, what what, what's the over-under on whether the, the Venom film is going to be worth a damn? Um, I got a bad feeling about this one, Chewie. I kind of do, too. I, so the thing is, I don't. I want it to be good because I like Tom Hardy, but I don't give a shit because I don't give a shit about Venom as a character in Marvel Comics. Well, Venom as a character, I think, is a lot like Paul Lind as an actor. <laughs> oh God! Oh God! You What's... put Paul Lind in in a guest starring spot, yeah, I'm... as a sidekick. Okay. Have him pop up every now and again as Uncle Arthur. He's great. But... You give him his own show. 
that's a whole lot of Paul Lind you got to digest every week. <laughs> and I think that this is a whole lot of venom. Yeah, yeah. I think the only thing that could really save it is the fact, at least for me, is the fact that I really enjoy watching Tom Hardy on screen. He's mm-hmm. fast. He's absolutely fascinating to me, and he's just, he's he's a really good actor. He has good he has good instincts as a performer. And the thing is, I know why he did this movie. It's because his son is a huge fan of the character, which is a bad idea for choosing a role. Yeah. That that has bit more than a few actors in the ball sack in the past, and I suspect <laughs> that this one will bite Tom Hardy pretty badly. Uh, the, the thing is, Hardy has made a—it's kind of been undercover in a lot of ways, being really creative and making some extremely good movies over the past five or so years. Um, there was this excellent film, and now I've forgotten the title of it. That. Is just him on screen in a car driving. Oh yeah, what's the name of that? I thing? cannot remember the name of it to save my life, but it was extremely good. It's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing drama, and he's phenomenal in it. And then there's this there's this excellent crime movie that was one of the last films uh, to star. Um, oh darn, the guys, the, the star of The Sopranos, um, James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini. One of his last films, a film called The Drop, mm-hmm. which is a, a crime film, that takes place in uh, a bo- mostly in a bar. Excellent, excellent film, and Hardy's amazing in that movie. And also, I was a big fan. I don't know if they're ever going to do another season of it, but I was a big fan of the show he and his brother co-created and Hardy starred in for uh, FX called Taboo, which was just fantastic. I thought it was a brilliant film. I mean, br- a brilliant series. I, I, I like I think the, the Taboo series is good, too. The Kay Parker was in the first two. You're, see, you're, you're thinking porn, Oh, I'm and this sorry. is this wasn't quite porn, although Tom Hardy was new to Fairmount, so not but not as new as Kay Parker was. <laughs> not as new as Kay Parker, no, and not doing the th- same things that Kay Parker probably was doing. not, no, 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 not at all, no. Um, yeah, you know, any back to Tom Hardy, um, like the drop. I've got that in my ultraviolet library and haven't watched that. Oh, it's very. To, good. I need to watch that. Um, That's a very good film. In fact, if any listeners have any ultraviolet codes they like to send me, I'll constantly beg for those. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, you will, you sorry whore. Yes, yes. But I, I do need to see that. I, I've, it's been one of the ones many times. I think, oh, I need to watch that, and then I'll get distracted and find something else. There's so much entertainment out there that How? you can't digest it all. Uh, something that I finally watched here recently. Um, years ago, I downloaded an illegal copy. Yes, I'm owning up to it. Of the film Popcorn from uh, 1991, ah. and uh, did not did not think much of the film at the time. And I knew I had a, I was looking at a crappy copy mm-hmm. of the movie at the time, but it just it didn't do much for me at all. Well, you know, I Sign Apps, of course, has put it out on Blu-ray, and it's a horror film, so of course I have it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> excuse, have no good excuse because we've always got curious. twenty dollars to spend on things we don't like. <laughs> I didn't spend I didn't spend twenty dollars on it. I I didn't I, I don't know what it was really, but I didn't anyway. I know uh, I'm not criticizing you for no, that, I, by I, the way. I, yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're the last person <laughs> yeah, to no, criticize me for that. Absolutely not. <laughs> but. <laughs> did sit down and and finally watched the Blu-ray of uh, Popcorn, and this time I turned around completely on that film. I yeah, really, I, really liked it. I really liked it. I think that movie was a lot of fun. I it, really liked it. It's that way better than my memory was, and it just has to have been that I was watching a really shitty mm-hmm. copy of it that, you know, that, that'll show you that uh, I shouldn't be downloading illegal movies and thinking that I'm seeing a good print of it. That's right. How dare you, sir? How dare you? I, I, I swear to you, I haven't, I, I don't do that anymore. Of course, we had to 
download an illegal print of this film well, to see it. I will tell you quite honestly, and I'll bet that you're the same way as me, I will illegally download something if I can't buy it. Yep, me too. Um, if that's the only way I can see it, if they don't want to sell it to me, I'll do that. But yep. as soon as they put out a version I can buy, I'll buy it. Or, I will or, gladly support people if they put out stuff agreed. that I want. Or you and I just talking before we started recording about both of us owning Rawhead Rex on Blu-ray and wondering why. That's right. As a perfect example, of, <laughs> I don't like this, but it's cheap, so I'm going to buy it. <laughs> it's an illness. This is not new. It's not doing either of us any favors. Tonight, we're talking about a spaghetti western from 1970 called And God Said to Cain, trying desperately to segue us back into the film tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, uh, I, I, will, I will say that I, it's evident to me having seen, um, at this point, I think most, if not all, of Margariti's spaghetti westerns, I have to say that he really must have loved the genre because he showers a lot of love on the uh, mise-en-scene, to sound pretentious. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I always feel like when we're watching a Margariti western, he is in his element to a degree. Uh, in the same way that Mario Bava was not in his element when trying to make the the, the westerns that he made uh, in the 60s, Margariti really, really had an affinity for the genre. At least it feels that way when you're watching one, because this is a this is a, a very smooth and very uh, well put together and visually well thought out uh, picture. And this is something that I felt, um, I first took note of it when I, when I did a, a kind of long form review of Take a Hard Ride several years ago. When I was really paying attention to um, the, um, the way he was framing shots in that movie and the way he was, the way he was moving the camera and things of that nature. And uh, I noticed it in this film as well. But I, I tell you what we ought to do uh, before we, uh, before we go any further, we should probably uh, take a break, let people, uh, Go and get uh, some popcorn, get a good drink. And, and then, don't illegally download your popcorn, unlike... Uh, unlike I did. <laughs> unlike baby face rot over here. <laughs> I am not a, much of a criminal. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and then we'll actually dive into talking about this film at length. Um, this is gonna, I'm, I can tell you right now, we're going to jump all over the place in this one. You're probably right. In fact, I wanted to say something... I'm going to backtrack, oh, about 90 seconds or so. Oh, well, go, go before ahead before we, we go. Before we go out. Because um, what you're saying about Margariti with the Spaghetti Westerns, one of the reasons I picked this one is because we done we did Take a Hard Ride a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. We did Vengeance, and that was the second of the Westerns that we watched together. And I'm right. discovering a lot of these films as we go. And like, we can watch another one of those. Yes, please, because the spaghettis oh, yeah. have been wonderful. I mean, they've been a treat so far. So, for me, it was like this should be really good, and a chance to see another one that quickly. I'm all over it. So, well, I'm we'll, right there with you. We will eventually cover um, more of his spaghetti westerns, especially um, the movie called um, "The Stranger and the Gunfighter" or "Blood Money." It's known under both those titles, and there's uh, uh, there's a couple more that will that we'll end up covering at different times as well, just because. I know they're I know they're I know they're good because I've already seen them and they're worth uh, they're worth going through in detail and really digging into. But yeah, his westerns are a blast, and luckily he also seems to have been pretty good at the Rambo ripoffs. When we get to the nineteen eighties films, <laughs> he really seems to have had had fun doing that. I mean, he it, honestly, it it really is so much fun with Margariti to kind of look at <laughs> look at his career as. 
Uh, okay. Science fiction movie ripoffs. Horror movie, horror movie ripoffs. You know, western ripoffs. Um, then there's the uh, the spate of Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs. And then there's the spate of Rambo ripoffs. And then there's the, in the, in the late 80s, the last few spur, spurious attempts to to do something that is possibly a ripoff of Aliens or the Terminator or a combination of both. And it always failed. <laughs> but it was it was worth seeing, goddammit. And Lord knows, yes, people, that does mean that eventually we'll get to Aliens from the Deep. Which is like somebody sat down with the script for The Abyss, the script for The Terminator, the script for Aliens, shoved them all into a blender, and then beat themselves in a hammer and wrote a script that looked kind of like it contained some of the same words. Now, see, to me, what you're doing is making this so that the next time I get to pick... It's going to be Aliens from the Deep. This might be the direction we go. <laughs> See, best be careful what you talk about. Hey, no, no, no. I'm, I'm ready. Aliens from the Deep, I'm ready to do. But I get to pick next time. So. That's true. I'm, I would say beware, but actually, I, I don't know, because the one I'm going to pick is one I haven't seen yet. So, nevertheless, folks, hang on just a second. We'll come back and start talking about And God Said to Cain. Dot, dot, dot. Hello, and welcome to a commercial for Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. I'm Brad. And on the podcast that is known as Hello, This is the Doom Show, we talk about Jalla movies, slasher movies, horror movies. We're going to interview Cary Grant live in the studio. We're going to interview Lucio Fulci in the studio, folks. We're going to put Cary Grant in the studio with Lucio Fulci. It's the interview you never thought would happen. I'm going to wear my Vincent Price slacks. I'm going to wear my Citizen Kane wristwatch and monocle. And now Brad is going to recite the Pledge of Allegiance in Portuguese. Brad, go. I don't have Portuguese. Go! Go! Stop hitting me! You're a natural actor. Yeah. Um, you can listen to us at hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com or you can find the archive at doomedmoviethon.com. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. You can find liberation from a serpent's bite among the Oh, you work.
can't sleep nights among these. Antonio Margariti, 1970, and God said to Cain. Okay, uh, we're gonna we've got a we've got a synopsis of the film here. I was gonna I started writing out one of my own, and then I realized that I have a perfectly good one that I can steal from the internet. Uh, allow me to apologize to my friend Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden. No, not that Iron, not that Adrian Smith. God, oh, it's my podcasting buddy. Uh, Adrian and I uh, podcast about once a year. The last uh, episode we did together was Lady Frankenstein. And he has a blog he's been doing for uh, about a year and a half now called Bloggeriti, the Antonio Margariti blog, where he's just kind of randomly reviewing Antonio Margariti films. And when he did And God Said to Cain, he did a pretty decent synopsis of the film that saves me the trouble of doing it myself. Well, steal away, sir. Yes. So, Adrian... Sorry about your trademark, but I'm stealing it. <laughs> you know, if you were a decent human, you'd have him just record this himself. Well, yes, but I'm A, not a decent human, and B, I want him to learn about the fact that I'm stealing this only after I've posted this show. Okay, fair. I don't want him to say, no, don't do that. Not that he would. That's fair. I mean, you know, at this point, he just he, he's actually in the most recent episode of the Nashi cast because he sent in a voicemail. <laughs> To, to respond to Troy and I running running down uh, <laughs> running down uh, the uh, Norman J. Warren film, um, oh god, the science fiction film, Inseminoid. Uh, he he had kind things to say about Inseminoid, even though he does admit it's a terrible film. <laughs> well, he sounds like my kind of guy. <laughs> Adrian's great. I mean, he really is a great guy. I think it's phenomenal, and he he allows me to not have to call him Doctor now that he has a PhD, <laughs> which is you know kindness. Uh, he does make his children, apparently, call him Daddy Doctor. So, 
that's cruelty. That's that's inhumane. I, at least in our country. I don't know about in England. I think in England it's required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. They're a strange people with customs different than our own. <laughs> Didn't we run away from that country for, for just such, for just such reasons? Okay. Uh, this film opens in a post-Civil War labor camp where prisoners are breaking rocks and uh, generally just wishing for death. Former Confederate officer Gary Hamilton, played by the amazing Klaus Kinski, is patiently biding his time until his sentence, sentence is over, unwilling to take the easy way out like some other prisoners who view death as the only relief from this back-breaking work in the hot desert sun. To emphasize this, we are shown that... Um, they're they're moving rocks around and they come across a rattlesnake, and uh, what well, did you think exactly what I thought oh, you would be thinking? I, you did indeed. <laughs> Which is aha! Our it's a margarita. Yeah, the trademark, trademark animal cruelty, but it happened so quickly it might not have been a real rattlesnake. It might not have been. Now we definitely have footage of a real rattlesnake, but honestly, can't tell if they actually killed the rattlesnake or not. You would think that if they had, they'd have lingered on it a little longer. Because that's the margarita way. That's right. Show it in slow motion, like a Sam Peckinpah film. <laughs> the snake throttling. <laughs> Being shot. Each bullet hit yeah. in slow motion. As parts of it blow off. All the snakes went... <laughs> but they more like... And of course, the slow motion only makes you identify with it more. And yeah. wonder, wonder what it's leaving behind on this earthly plane. <laughs> Okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm taking it too far. Now, under... Um, should I interrupt as you go ahead, along go, the plot? Please, please. I, I just want to say one... The write-off, again, we always talk about how Margarita knows how to start a movie. Yes. And the opening credits pretty much are two shots and um, with just a couple of cuts. And it starts off with a close-up of like a rock being broken and then the yeah. camera draws back, back, back and you get a, a scene of all the men and the desert... Then there's another cut in the middle, and then another long, long shot. Very nice. I, I, I love it. I also really like the editing in this film a lot. Yeah. And it's not. It's it's something that does I do um, notice in movies in general. And uh, of course, when we're doing one of these films, I, I try to pay, pay particular attention because sometimes the editing in these movies is something that's it can get a little sloppy. Mm-hmm. But I've never noticed that in Margarita Spaghetti Westerns. They always seem to be very tightly edited. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, because of him or if he, you know, the people who he who, who did his editing uh, were particularly talented. But this is a really well-edited film. And I think once we, once we divulge what the body of the film is, it kind of had to be mm-hmm. because of the, the way they're choosing to tell the story. It had to be very smartly edited. Because of the the time frame in which the film takes place, it can't they can't screw around with uh, those kinds of edits that give you time to think about how long or short a period of time the story is taking place in, because they're kind of bending and stretching certain mm-hmm. certain perceptions as you go along through the story. <clears throat> but uh, so, so we're not we we didn't see the graphic death of a snake, which is you know a first. Which is good. <laughs> Some uh, remarkable restraint there. And oh, well, wait a minute. First, what did you think of the uh, the opening song? Oh yeah, I really liked it. I think That's it's a really great. good song. I think it is a great song. As a matter of fact, the uh, if you're listening to the podcast, yes, that is the song that I just played as we came back into this because I think it's great. I think it's just a, just a great song. Uh, Car- it's uh, the music's written by Carlos Savina, 
who did the uh, the score for the film, and it's a great score. I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, Carlos Savina. Um, of course, now I'm thinking, uh, you know, just recently, Stelvio, uh, is it Cipriani or Cipriani? I think it's Stelvio Cipriani, the composer who did a bazillion great film scores, mm-hmm. just recently passed away, uh, and uh, it's got my it's got my mind it's got my mind on score, you know, film scores here lately. And so when I sat down to watch this, uh, go back through, kind of, kind of spot, go back through this again, I just found myself listening to the score more than I was listening to the dialogue because I already had the story down, but just the music itself. Sometimes you forget just how powerful a score can be. And this is a, this is a really good score, but that song right at the beginning, it, sets the, it really sets the tone for the movie. And it's, it's emotional, but it's also, this being a 1970 film... It feels like those kinds of uh, Western movie themes, you know, from the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, like a big epic yeah. kind of song. It's it's beautiful, <clears throat> and, it's, and it's one that it's one that I I will listen to over and over yeah. again. Because yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. Deep. I meant to write that down and did not. So oh, it's just I, yeah, I, thanks for bringing think, that out. I think so much of that song. I think it's phenomenal. And now you've heard it as well, people. So either you agree or you think I'm insane. So. Go with insanity, usually. Now, fortunately for Mr. Gary Hamilton, uh, once the opening credits are over, he gets released from prison, which is a little strange because he's not given a reason for why, he, because he's still supposed to stay to be there for a number of more years, but his sentence has been commuted after just 10 years. He's supposed to be in there for life, and we're not given a reason why his sentence is being commuted. They don't tell him anything. This guy just the the just the in light warden, of you being a pretty good guy or whatever. Overall, we're going to let you out of here. Yeah. Are you Gary Hamilton, Lieutenant Gary Hamilton? You, Gary Hamilton, have been pardoned. Everything will probably make sense if I read this. By the existence of an amendment which considers amnesty for political offenders and taking into consideration your past military merits. I therefore, on behalf of the President of the United States, hereby declare by virtue of the above-mentioned amendment your sentence commuted and order your immediate release. And so therefore, you are a free man. Now we've all seen a lot of westerns in our lives unless we have a phobia toward them and we don't want to get anywhere near them. So this doesn't really strike anybody as all that odd because, well, clearly the movie to exist, our main character has got to get out of prison and go on the vengeance road. That's, you know, that's kind of what a lot of these movies Mm -hmm. entail is man in prison gets out, goes to make bastards who put him in prison pay. But it is... That first little moment in the film where I kind of went, oh, that's interesting, because I hadn't seen the film in several years when I sat down to watch it for this. So you're thinking, oh, man, it's a good thing he didn't let that snake bite him like his, <laughs> like his fellow inmate said, hey, there's your way out of here. Uh-huh. Let that snake bite you and you'll die. And he goes, I don't want to go that way. So lucky. Lucky and yeah. very strange. We'll come back to that. Well, he sets off for, to, to go get his revenge. Which, again, right after the pardon. Another, just a great little moment, and Margarita's the master of this. You see all the men look at him that are still there, and suddenly they're looking at him differently because he's just been pardoned. He's leaving. Right. And they all look at him like, well, you're not one of us anymore. 
And then the camera, this great crane shot, pans back right. to show just the vastness of everything that's ahead of him. As he, yeah, as he walks away, and, mm-hmm. the men, and the men continue, you know, digging, you know, digging out everything and cracking, op- you know, cracking open what looks like they're like clearing rocks away from this whole area, like there's a road that's going to go through mm-hmm. or something. Well, clearly, Mister Hamilton is determined to punish the man responsible, and that man is named Akambar, which is a strange name to listen to for an entire film. Mm-hmm. His last name is Akambar, and that's what everybody calls him. And he is basically. Every Western character that Gene Hackman ever played. (laughs) (laughs) He's definitely the evil bastard character that he played in Unforgiven. I'll say that for sure. (laughs) And Quick and the Dead. Yeah. And Hunting Party. (laughs) You're right. You're right. Uh, Well, that's the man responsible. He's a well-respected and wealthy landowner with a great big blonde mustache. Mm -hmm. He's a a, a blonde fellow. And and, And we'll come back to the whole blonde thing, too. He's played by a German actor named Peter Karsten. And the thing is, when watching this the other night, I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. And yeah, it turns out that Peter Karsten has been in about a dozen movies that I've seen over the years. And probably you as well. Mm-hmm. He was Dr. Karmus, Karmus in Web of the Spider for Margariti. Mm-hmm. He played a character in Mr. Super Invisible. God save me, I can't remember which. Well, I mean, that's a movie. It's there's so many good characters. It's it's hard to keep up with them all. It's so he, rich. <laughs> he was the German scumbag, ex-Nazi in Dark of the Sun. That uh, that you, you know, Dark of the Sun from 1968. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, which is just a great action movie. Well, that's the, the the scumbag German in that movie. The same guy. Um, he was in the Quiller Memorandum. Uh, he was the German character in A Study in Terror, the Sherlock Holmes film from 1965. Oh, yeah, that's a good movie. It is a good movie. Um, and for Margarita, he was also in The Squeeze. Oh, he was uh, the, the film Zeppelin. He was in the film Zeppelin around the same time with um, with Michael York. Uh, so, seen him in half a dozen or a dozen damn things, and uh, I've never seen him quite this blonde. <laughs> but <laughs> it is kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's like pro-wrestling blonde. It's yeah, like it Rick is. It's flare blonde. It's blonde. Well, Hamilton picks up a rifle and a horse uh, from, from a guy as he's heading back into town. Uh, gets onto a passing stagecoach where he meets a handsome young military man who's uh, returning home for a stay before he returns back to... Um, seems to be like... They seem to be intimating that he's going back to like a military fort where he's about to finish up his, some, uh, some specific type of training. This guy's blonde, too, and he just happens to be Dick Akambar, the son of the fellow that uh, <clears throat> is about to get all vengecized by it's Klaus Kinski's character. dropped on him. It's true. So he's the son, and he's quite blonde, too. But this fellow, he honestly seems like a really decent guy and not uh, the dishonest heel that his father has turned out to be. Hamilton makes sure that Dick gives a message to his father that he will be visiting him later that night. Dick assumes that their old friends passes on the message to his dad, and Akambar, as you might imagine, becomes a bit worried and calls his posse of men together. It appears that ten years ago, Akambar stole a truckload of gold right at the end of the Civil War and set Gary Hamilton up to take the fall. No wonder he's mad as hell. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately for Akambar, Gary Hamilton grew up in this small frontier town and knows well the conveniently placed caves and mining tunnels just below its streets. So he uses his knowledge to great advantage as he spends most of the rest of the film popping up from the ground, shooting a few of the the men, and disappearing again like a psychotic (laughs) whack-a-mole. 
darn it, there went one of my lines. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's that's pure. That's that's totally Adrian Smith. Uh, I got credit where credit's due. All of this is straight from Adrian. Uh, one of these men happens to be played by uh, Margariti regular Luciano Pigozzi, uh, who's who's the Italian Peter Lorre, yep. and of course we've talked about him in Naked You Die, almost every episode, and <laughs> yeah. and I, I gotta jump right in again here and say one of the best things about doing this series of shows is discovering this guy's work. Oh, he's wonderful. And really, like, now I look for him, everyone. Like, where, where is he coming? Where is he? And then he's like, ah, there he is. And they make you wait a little longer in this one than some that we've seen. The last yeah, couple he's popped up, true. like, almost in the first frame. Well, we waited a while in uh, the, the uh, Temple of the Sun God. Yeah, but that's been a while. The last yeah. couple, though, it's been pretty quick. But he gets a really nice, juicy role in this one. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I begin to I begin to wonder if, uh, not not that there there's any hint visually about this but the way his character is so grieving over the death of one one of the one specific other henchman is like my god man was this your husband i mean they really he really missed him he really was unhappy that this man was killed um which was which was odd and i i kind of wondered if that was what was being intimated there Mm -hmm. and the reason i say that is that um this is a year after the wild bunch and in the Wild Bunch, there would there there had always been a there's always been a lot of talk about the the characterization between the uh, character the, the characterization between L. Q. Jones's character and Strother Martin's character in in that film as the kind of you know scumbag murderers who bicker the entire time. They're like the best of friends and they're never separated, but they bicker like mar- like an old married couple constantly. Mm-hmm. And the, the the intimation was that you know like. Maybe these guys were a little closer without realizing what you know what their relationship really was for each other. And I and I kind of wonder this is a year after that, and that that being something that maybe other filmmakers are starting to play with, I don't know. Or maybe I'm just seeing this and you know the, no, the extreme the extreme grief being expressed by uh, Luciano Pagosi or Alan Collins as he is in the credits. You know, it's it's not that big of a stretch to think that. No, it's it's I, not. It, I didn't think of it at the as I watched it, but that is not. I, you're not really reaching too far to think that. I could I could see that. But there really isn't any. There's nothing visual within the film that gives you an indicator that that might be something that they were aiming right. to kind of to kind but, of hint strong to even hint weakly toward. Except that. But that's the only death in the film that anybody even seems to blink at. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. if people are just dropping left and right, it's like, oh, leave him. Leave them. Keep going. Get, get, get out of the way because you might get shot. That's about it. Yeah.
But stop that bell ringing! Now, one thing that we need to mention here before we go too much further, because I think this is one of the key elements to the film that really makes it succeed as well as it does, is the undercurrent that while all this is going on, there's a tornado coming to town. So there's this wind just howling and blowing dust and tumbleweeds. Yep. And it all starts at the exact second that Hamilton shows up. Yeah. It's almost as if... And it's not as if he timed this in any specific way. He's just... He leaves prison, and the next day, he rides into this town, having having issued his warning through mm-hmm. the through the sun, and le- and left very 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 smartly. He's left accidentally, quote unquote, his uh, his water canteen from when he was a soldier in the uh, in the uh, in the wagon. So the son finds that and thinks he accidentally left it behind and takes it to his father, and that turns out to be. Uh, how they framed, how his father and his cohorts framed Gary Hamilton, Klaus Kinski's character, for this robbery that that put him in prison. Mm-hmm. And it's a great shot where he, the guys, the posse knows he's coming. Yeah. So they're ready. He's got to come this way. He comes up over the hill, the sun behind him. So this is as the sun sets. Yeah. Phenomenal shot of a yeah. silhouette of of him with the sun behind him, the wind starting to howl. It's a great-looking scene. Yeah, he rides down the hill, goes behind a building, and then remember what happens after that? Oh, yeah. So that there, When the horse reappears, he's no longer on it. He's just disappeared from the horse. Yeah, a riderless horse. Yeah. But you know who I think was steering the horse? Uh, no. An what? invisible chimp. Oh, God. I no. mean, that horse, somebody was giving him directions. Yes. Someone was, and it was an invisible chimp. People, we will now pause while I beat John Hudson with a stick. Please ignore the shouts and the whines and the curses. No, no one was leading the horse, you bastard. I still think it was an invisible chimp. <laughs> it's not an invisible chimp. Shut up about the fucking chimp. God damn. Ugh. So mean. So mean. Yes, I am mean because you keep pushing the invisible chimp button which is just pain <laughs> you say it i feel pain and i want to inflict pain upon you you know when that horse rounded the corner somebody was at the reins no, or something no. something something anyway yes, i thought yes. that was actually pretty clever because of course we know <laughs> because you want to see an invisible chimp no i'm sorry or don't see him but we know that when the horse went behind the building hamilton ducked into his yeah, a little tunnel, and but to the guys, it's like he comes out and just disappears. Exactly, he's out of sight for just a few seconds, and then he's gone. Um, this is the mo- this is a truly fascinating thing because I first of all I love this conceit within a film. The idea that it's it's not done that frequently because it's very difficult to hang on to the thread long enough to make it believable that this is all happening in such a compacted period of time. But the rest of this movie, from this point on, takes place over the course of this night. So, this movie ends... This Once once we see the sunset behind him as he comes into town to confront, you know, somewhere between like 20 and 30 men with guns looking to kill him... I think they throw the number out as 30 yeah. somewhere in there, right. I think. So, the... Um, uh, I think the official body count on the film is like 18 or 19. 
So I don't think we see. I think some people run, ran away. <laughs> I, I wouldn't blame them. <laughs> We'd not either. But the um, the the film ends. The final sequence of the film is with the sunrise. Mm-hmm. That's what the credits are over. Is the sunrise after this night is over, and I love that when a movie decides to put itself into a particular time restriction and have everything happen over the course of a you know a specific short space of time. This doesn't take place over days or weeks or anything like that. Once we get, honestly, from the beginning of the film to the end of the film is like, what, two and a half days? Yeah, not Three days at most? Yeah. He starts off in the prison and goes to get the, 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 his horse, he goes to get a horse and, you know, he, with the money that, that he, that he had, you know, when he went into prison, he buys a, a horse and a gun, the rifle that he carries the rest of the film, and then, um, gets on the stage. And then he says, I'll see him at sundown. And that's what he does. Yeah. yeah. So now, I guess and that's actually days. one of the only flaws in the film. And it may just be the fault of the transfer because it does end at sunrise. Yeah. But there are a couple shots during the final sort of siege in the house where it's daytime. And it's probably just bad day. Is for, it? Yeah. Okay. And I, it's probably just okay. day for night. Photography that the the transfer didn't do a good job with. Maybe, maybe I don't remember. Yeah, okay, but yeah, just yeah. a couple. Um, you know, a lot of, like you remember where maybe like the uh, servants are outside coming up the side of the house and. Oh yeah, you're right. I think that is that's day for night shooting. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Okay, okay. But um, you are correct. But that again, I can't really blame the director on that because I think probably just something went wrong in the transfer. Or, well, that's just something that has to be done in the in the process after the fact. Yeah. It's, a, it's a filter effect yeah, that has yeah. to happen. Uh, okay, well, to complicate the, the plotting of this film just a little bit more, Akambar's wife, uh, who is clearly his second wife, uh, a woman named Maria, uh, used to be Gary Hamilton's girlfriend, but she also betrayed him by lying in court to say that she was alone on the day of the, uh, the robbery rather than with him, thus destroying his alibi and sending him to prison. Well, now, Akambar, Akambar clearly got her to go along with this idea. She's now living a privileged yet lonely existence with Akambar. She clearly regrets her actions and even hopes for some sort of reconciliation with Gary when he finally turns up at the village for a, this showdown. Um, she is also blonde. Now, let's talk about the blonde hair for a minute. We've got the villain of the piece, Akambar, blonde. His son is blonde, and honestly, they, they look a good they good deal they look mm-hmm. a good deal like each other. So that that's pretty neat. But then the the gorgeous woman who betrayed the protagonist of the film is also this blonde woman. So you have these three characters. They're all blonde. They're the only blondes in the movie. Everybody else is you know dark haired or you know one one version of gray or another, including one character who who honestly. That is some that is some movie gray hair. That is not real gray hair, but I'm willing to let it slide. Now, I thought just baby powder had fallen on his head, or <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good guess. It's probably true. Probably what it was. It was 1970. It was. It was. We were. We were going to be looking at this 40 some odd years later. No, Nobody's going to watch attention. this again. <laughs> Come on. It was a god man. It's 48 years later, isn't it? This Ugh. movie. This movie's 48 years old. Holy crap. There's oh. a thought for you. Oh man, 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That that made your hope that made you hurt as much as the invisible chimp bullshit made me hurt. So that, that was it I just, re, it just reminded accidental. me that the gray in my hair isn't baby powder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gray in mine either. <laughs> we we's getting old. Just a hair. Just a gray a, hair. Just just a smidge. But um Gary is uh they, they, at one point during the film, he actually confronts her. He 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 makes it into the house later in the film and confronts her, and uh, he's just not interested in reconciling with her. Tosses her to the side, just like she threw him under the bus ten years early. And when they finally come face to face, Akinbar is full of rage, which helpfully makes his aim a bit off. Now, before we get to, I don't want to necessarily spoil the way this film ends, although I've got the feeling I'm going to fuck up and do it anyway, but. Let's talk about the body of the film, which is um, how Hamilton deals with this army of men as he tries to find a way to get to Akambar, the only person he's really interested in killing in the first place. Yes, because I thought that this was a brilliant idea. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. There's, you can suspend a lot of disbelief, but one guy taking out 30 guys is a, is a bit it, much. It's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. Unless he knows about a series of tunnels that nobody else knows about. Right. Where he can just pop up through it looks almost like different different barns. Barns. He can be above, he can be below, right. and these guys never see him. So suddenly he just sticks his head out like a whack-a-mole <laughs> yeah. and takes out four or five of them at a time and then ducks back. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. And, of course, these guys panic. There's a couple instances where they shoot each other. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Because that is something that I had forgotten how often. That happens, I think, at least three times in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then a fourth time. And that's just with the, the henchmen, right? Right. There's a fourth time that happens near the end that's kind of a bit spoilerish that I kind of want to hold off on. But it, by the second time that happens... You understand they're getting spooked. First of all, they're in the middle of a big windstorm. It's it's at night. They've already seen, you know, several of several of their friends or their co- co-workers or however they think of these other men being picked off one by one mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. this guy who's just just seems to be freaking invisible because they can't even tell where he's firing from. It too far back at yeah. it. And underneath all of that, ratcheting up the tension even more is that somebody keeps untying the church bell. Yes. So it blows in the wind with this opening of back and black toll <laughs> going over and over again <laughs> to eventually where they're saying, tie that thing up or cut it down. Oh, I know. And it, and it keeps and it, and it, and it keeps going <clears throat> long enough in the story that it's almost impossible to not think about. I mean, when we, when we finally do find out, when they finally get into the, to the church and confront the, the priest there who never says a word... But he provides his own soundtrack on the organ. On the organ, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, even his own his own death cue. <laughs> well, I, 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 when they finally find out why the bell is not tied off mm-hmm. and continues to, to to blow in the in the breeze and continues to ring and really unnerve everybody, uh, it's it's just another thing to you know that that Hamilton has done to unnerve them completely, which is he's killed another one of them and strung the corpse up to the to the to the rope. Which is a fantastic shot of that yeah. guy's body going up and down and uh-huh. zooming in and out. It's the the whole film, this section of it, where he's 
very carefully taking the entire night, taking hours to keep these guys ner- nervous, scared, uh, and so twitchy that at multiple times, one of them isn't smart enough to warn his co his co conspirators. I mean, not no, his cohorts, and one of them will walk in and get shot. And the first time it happens, it's like, oh, holy crap, these guys are jumpy. The second time it happens, you're like, oh, wait a minute. He's going out of his way to keep these guys so jumpy that they're going to start pulling the trigger on anything that scares them. Mm, like the bit where like a looks like maybe a blanket is blowing across the street. Right. Bam, bam, bam. So there's a guy behind the blanket, and he's, and he's down. Now, you know, whether or not Hamilton had anything to do with that, that blanket blowing in the wind like that or not doesn't matter. It's another one of those instances where you're sitting where you're sitting there and going, "Wow, these guys are taking care of themselves." This is this is a bit of a self cleaning oven. <laughs> He's he doesn't have to do as much work as you might think. Now is that a reference to those Germanic lead actors with the, the Germanic oven? lead? Actor. No, no, that no, is not the no, oven. Although there are a lot of German actors in this film. Okay, sorry. No, 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 not 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 making any snide World War II comments because we no. we don't want to do anything in bad taste on this show. Oh, yeah, no, of course not. Because bad taste is secondary in, secondary in nature to us. <laughs> but no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that the 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 it's it seems to be his plan to use anything at his disposal to keep these guys frightened. Now, when I first talked to you about this movie, I told you that this film was a bit of a combination of spaghetti western and gothic horror film. This is what I'm talking about. That and one other thing. He uses these characters' fears. These, you know, 20 or 30, however many men. He uses their fears to his own advantage. He is keeping them frightened and afraid so that some of them kill themselves. But one other thing, the other element that is impossible to not take notice of is the house that the bad guy lives in, which is just this beautiful gothic place. Mm-hmm. Where in the, in the main room, the main uh, setting, setting room, which is like the dining room, the walls are covered by mirrors, which is a tricky thing when you start thinking about the fact that the camera's got to be in this room all the time. You have to very carefully set those mirrors up so that you don't see the camera every shot. Yeah, and that took some work. That really took some, took some work. But... The house is very ornately built, with uh, lots of. Uh, I, I wish I knew more. I wish I knew more about furnishing, so I could actually give you the 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 name of the the, the style in which this place is decorated. But it's uh, it's very much. It looks very much like they just stepped into a freaking gothic horror picture. This looks like the interior of a of a European castle. Oh, it looks like Roderick Usher should come down the <laughs> stairs at any yes. point. It really does. Well, and that is something that I would like to point out here. Just a small detail. Why make the villain and his son blonde? And it does put me in mind of the way they visualized Roderick Usher mm-hmm. in Corman's House of Usher film. Hmm. With that with that hair color. With that light hair color. And like I say, may, maybe that has nothing to do with what they were going for. But they definitely intentionally made these characters blonde. And no one else in the film. 
so because I know the actress uh, who plays uh, Maria. She's not blonde. She's not naturally blonde. So they definitely went for blonde for whatever reason for all three of them. With that in mind, with the kind of gothic horror trappings of that setting, it's like um, you have this spaghetti western village. You know, this spaghetti western town, and at the heart of it is this gothic horror house, and it's. Like it, it almost makes me feel like the Westworld TV series where we're, <laughs> we're, we're working our way through a maze to get to the center, and the mm-hmm. center is where the film take is where the film ends and where the final confrontation takes place, and it's working your way through a western to get through, get to a horror film. But the neat thing about it is, I think it's a horror film all along. It's just got spaghetti western trappings. I'm going to struggle here a little bit. I'm trying to not give the game away too much about because this is a film I'd like to see people seek out. Uh, first thing, let's point out that it is possible to see this on uh, various streaming services. I know Amazon Prime apparently covers it. The version that we saw is generally, uh, I think, the most complete version of the film. that was put together by a fan dubber more than 15 years ago, possibly even more than 20 years ago. I can't be sure. Because there's a there's a a short minute or two of the film that is edited out of most English language prints, even though it, it was dubbed into English, it's just been shortened a little bit for some reason. And uh, it's a very widescreen film. This is a movie that was shot two, three, five to one, so it's very widescreen. As a matter of fact, I've seen some uh, trailers that claim that uh, it was filmed in seventy millimeter. I severely doubt that. I don't know how much money was spent on this, but I don't know that they actually shot it 70 millimeter. Yeah, it looks. It doesn't look cheap, but it doesn't no. look that rich either. No, but the uh, but it is it is a very widescreen picture. The look of the film is very good, and once again, Margariti is using that widescreen frame very effectively all the time. I think I think that one of the reasons he may have wanted to shoot this film as wide as it is is because of those you know not just because of the the framing of of you know, setting up, uh, setting up the the victims of Gary Hamilton in certain shots, so that you can see five of them get blown away one at a time, all in the same se- all, you know in sequence, all in one shot. But because of those gothic horror uh, uh, shots with in, inside that room with all the mirrors, uh, because it plays out uh, the, the the first thing, the first time you see in, in any movie, you see any place that's got mirrors all over the walls. Immediately, I of course think, ah, oh, yes, the the uh, Hall of Mirrors sequence in Kentucky uh, Fried Movie. No, not Kentucky Fried Movie. Oh my God, no, not Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> what is wrong with you? What in the hell? Is, I'm talking, <laughs> talking Orson Welles, you son of a bitch. <laughs> talking about a film made by Orson Welles. He didn't make Kentucky Fried Movie. No, he did not. How the hell with it? I'm with a If he had, people would still talk about him. <laughs> the people would still talk <sighs> I, I don't know what to say. <sighs> Lady from Shanghai. Lady from Shanghai. Orson Welles. See, folks, I'm not a complete cretin, believe no, it or not. No, you just want to push my buttons and make me strangle you. <sighs> people... I'm not a violent man. That may be a lie. <laughs> back up. <laughs> so at any point, 
if I strangle it. No, if at any point you see a movie that is employing the whole, you know, room covered in mirrors thing, that's immediately where my mind goes because that's the most famous and that's the most famous type of that uh, mm-hmm. scene. And maybe the earliest of that kind of scene. I think it's it been, was. It's been copied repeatedly throughout cinema history. Yeah, probably In the Dragon is the one that's the most well known. Right, right. You mean not Conan the Destroyer? Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the two. It's kind of one a of tie. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. You're, that's yeah. That's that's a tie. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Just as many people admire one as the other. <laughs> yeah. It's your son. Or would you prefer to live in a dung heap like I did when I was a boy? Well, I'll tell you. You wouldn't like it, boy. And don't tell me you don't like the life I've offered you so far. I don't think like you. What do you mean? That you refuse all this? I spoke with him. I know the truth. What do you know about truth? The truth! This is the truth! During the uh, rampage... As Hamilton is going through town just wasting guys. Yes. There's one death in particular that I want to point out because it's just so cool. And I'm not going to say which character it is. Okay. But they, um, finally they say, stop that bell. The church bell just keeps going and going. So it's like, right. you know, tie it up or cut it down. So a fella goes up to cut the bell down. And there's a couple guys down below in the bell tower. Hamilton reaches up in a very conveniently placed trap door. Yes. Grabs fellow by the legs, trips him, so the bell comes crashing down on him, basically cutting him in half. Yes, exactly. Oh, what a death that is. And very effectively pulled off. Yeah, and that's, I think, because we always look for miniature work. Yeah. And I think that's probably our only miniature shot in the film. As far as I could tell, yes. Now, there may be... Now, granted... A lot of the a, there may be some some of those shots of the um, the kind of the village at night while the storm is going That's on. That's true. There that might be wide, something there. These big wide shots. There may be some miniature work there, but I don't know. There are those are seamless if they are. If but, they are, I don't. The, I don't know. And the bell shot. Looks great too. At no point does it look like one, but that's the only way they could have pulled that off. Yeah, that is the only way they could have pulled it off. What a it's shot! It. It's just a point of view from the character of the bell coming down at his face. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it was. It's very. It's very well done. And yeah, you're right. It's a bit of a shock, but mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, to your point about it being a conveniently placed uh, trap door. I think it's conveniently placed, and I think that also that's just another one of the little traps he's laid because. He's, well, that's he's true. dangled, he knows the, that's he's dangled there. the body there. He knows that as long as that he's un, he knows he's un, he's been unnerving them for over an hour or two with that bell, you know, ringing in the wind and them not being able to to work their way over there to to find you know to find a way to stop it from ringing and driving them crazy. So he knows they're going to come there and try to do something with it. So whether he thought they would be stupid enough to cut the bell down or not, he knew he was going to be able to take somebody at least somebody else out. 
through that trap door. I mean, maybe he just thought he was going to kill them or cut their throats or something. But yeah, it worked Good out point. really effective. It worked out very well. And, the, and the, I have to say, the 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 look on um, Kinski's face as he uh, uh, get, get you know as he ducks away from the kind of collapsing floor that is the collapsing ceiling for him down in that tunnel. The look on his face is is that very that very stoic satisfied look of a man who <laughs> it's almost as if you know that worked out better than i yeah, thought that, it would that was pretty cool huh <laughs> that that was and better than i thought it was going to be kinsky's face in this by the way we don't get to hear his voice but no he's 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 dubbed and it, it's, it's it's decent fine. it's decent dubbing but, but it's not kinsky's voice but his face is so good as usual he's got one of those faces that just speaks volumes Udo has got the same sort of face just yeah. Just as the story is just in just the look in his eyes or just a, a quick twitch. Um, but he's so good. He almost doesn't need any dialogue, but there's a few yeah. spots where he would have to say something. But but I, as I watched it, it was like, could they have pulled this off without him saying a word? Maybe, but... It's, it's, it's better to have him... Well, I thought it was interesting the areas in which... The areas of the film in which he doesn't, he doesn't respond. He doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. The character does speak in the film quite a bit. He has a, he has a good bit of dialogue, but there are some sequences where he could be replying. Either right. in anger or in, expl- or in explanation. And he's not. And it's that... You know, it's, it's, it's the look in Kinski's eyes. Because remember, the, the, you know, this is a... To, to a large degree, this is his movie. He's the he's the central performance, and in a lot of ways, he's playing this kind of stoic character who's um, on on a mission, and he's not you know he's not outwardly showing a lot of emotion. He's just gritting his teeth and getting through. Mm-hmm. He's got, he's on the vengeance road. We're going to get this done, and um, there's a well, I, I I have a theory about this film, and it's one that uh, I wondered. If um, what I was seeing was something that others who've talked about this film in the past might have seen as well, and it started uh, when I was rewatching it, uh, I guess it was about a week ago, sitting down for the first time, going through it for the first time in several years, and immediately noticing that it was odd when the movie opens and we're in the prison or they're breaking rocks that uh, Kinski's character is barefoot, and I was like, holy shit, man, that's that's some that's some rough shit. Put some boots or something. You know, let let these let this poor son of a bitch wear some shoes because that just looks uncomfortable as hell. And uh, then he's released. He, he he reclaims his clothes. He's let out of prison with the with I'm assuming the clothes that he went into prison in, instead of in the uh, you know the prison clothing that he was uh, in previously. And at first you don't take too much notice of it because he's wearing this kind of black or gray overcoat, but. For most of the film, well, no, for the whole film, he's wearing a red shirt, a bright red shirt. And I thought, man, that's that's odd because he's running around in the dead of night trying to not be seen, and he's wearing a bright, bright red shirt. That's going to draw attention to yourself. He should, he'd be better off not wearing a shirt at all and blend in a little bit better than running around with a red shirt on. And I thought, well, that's, that's really weird. Also... Let me reiterate that we're never given a reason for why he's being turned loose after ten years. There's this, you know, this vague statement about his sentence being commuted, but we're not told why. He's not told why. He's just like set free. 
I think it was the Plot Contrivance Act of 1875. Now, see, that's a perfectly good way of looking at it. Yes, I agree. But why not give a reason? Why not give a concrete reason? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I'm I'm not giving too much away to point out that Kinski's character of Gary Hamilton is never even wounded in this movie. Not shot, not cut, not harmed. He breezes through this movie as a one-man slaughterhouse and is unhurt by the end of it and rides off into the sunrise. Not the sunset, but the sunrise. The gun he walks into town with, or rides into town with, to get on the vengeance road, is a rifle. He doesn't carry around a handgun, although at later points in the movie he does pick up other people's, other dead folks' (laughs) pistols and use them to good effect. But what he's walking around with is is a rifle. And that's the weapon of uh, someone killing from a distance, killing usually from on high, like a sniper. But he inverts that completely because he's not shooting from on high. He's not shooting from like from a perch like a sniper. He's shooting from places underground. He's finding you know places where there's where there's a, a, a barred window or up through a, a hatch in the floor or some kind of hidden entrance. He's always shooting from below in general. There are a few shots where he's gotten gotten a pie and he's shooting down, but it's weird how he's almost always killing these guys, aiming up at them. And it began to dawn on me something that might just be going on here with all these visual hints and all these weird little things. First of all, he's barefoot in the first scene of the film, and we see this rattlesnake, and we and we're told the first dialogue in the movie is about that's a what you know that's a way out, that's a way to end this, which is to just die. And then he's released immediately after that. He's let out of prison, and he's barefoot. Now the first thing that comes to my mind is <clears throat> corpses are buried barefoot. <laughs> you don't waste good shoe leather on a dead body. True. Now some of the other inmates were barefoot as well. I'll grant you that. And then there's the red shirt. That's just freaking weird. Well, it could be your standard sort of, you know, Western could be underwear, long johns, red. But it's a shirt. It's not long johns. That's what I thought too. But you can clearly see that it's a shirt. So that's, I mean, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. It's not too weird. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think you'll agree, outside of that, that really ornate kind of gothic style house. It's really the only place in the movie outside of that place where there's any real color. That's is true. That red Everything shirt. else is just sort of black and gray. Sort of gray. And, yeah. Well, he's never wounded. Now, that's not necessarily that odd. I mean, <laughs> in a spaghetti western or in a western in general, your central character often you know gets away with absolutely not a scratch. That's you know not that big a deal. The attacks from below, the fact that his general way of getting to these people is to, A, scare the shit out of them and keep them fearful, doing everything he can to get them to screw themselves over, and he's shooting from, he's attacking from underground all the time, from below. And I began to wonder, is this fucker a demon? (laughs) Is the idea that we're supposed to be getting here that this guy's actually died in prison? He died after 10 years, and this is just his spirit of vengeance come back to make retribution on everything and everybody that did it, that had anything to do with his 
being in prison and dying. Hmm. And the more I thought about it, the more it seems like that might be something that, at least at script level, and maybe definitely something the director, Margariti, was thinking about, was playing it that way. Playing it so that you could see it that way if you wanted to. On the other hand, he also interacts with people who oh yeah, he did not have a beef with. True, true. So you could go either way. But you might want to take note of the fact that the character in the movie... Well, there are characters in the movie who are glad to see him back and actually help mm-hmm. him do things. And a couple of them, unfortunately, do die as a consequence of helping him. But the son character, Akambar's son, who seems to actually be a good guy, mm-hmm. and once he's told, he gets the whole story of what happened, not from his father, who's trying to hide it from him, but from... From Hamilton. From Hamilton, who tells him the whole story. And this just guts that young man. Because he's, he completely believes him, and it destroys his vision of his father. And puts him in the horrible position where he's angry with his father because he can't let this man murder his father. But he also thinks that the man's in the right. And the... Hamilton has nothing to do with that man's death. He doesn't want... He has no interest in harming him. He didn't do anything to him. He says it out loud. He says it to some of the other characters. He didn't do anything. The character doesn't survive the film, which is another great scene, but I Mm -hmm. I won't... spoil exactly what goes down in that sequence because I think it's well played. But, this was made in 1970. This came out in February of 1970. And the film that this reminds me most of, the one that this echoed immediately for me as soon as I started thinking about this, was High High Plains Plains Drifter. Drifter. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Which was what, three years later? Mm Mm-hmm. I struggled. I, I did some hunting. I even asked film knowledgeable friends on Facebook, hey, Do you know of, other than High Plains Drifter and its flip side, Pale Rider from 1985, of any Western films in which the main character turns out to have probably been a ghost, (laughs) to have been a spirit of vengeance or a ghost? Got a few answers here and there. Only one person chimed in with the title of this film, which I thought was a bit of a surprise. The film isn't that well known. I'm sure that for most people listening to this podcast, they've never had the opportunity to see this film. But I now wonder if this, being three years earlier than High Plains Drifter, wasn't an influence on that film in some way. Possibly. Could very well be. Now, you know, creative minds sometimes run in the same circles accidentally. You know, dig, dig, you know, uh, dig the same rut, end up in the same ditch, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. But it seems to me that there is a very small little subgenre of the western where the main vengeance-seeking character turns out to have possibly been dead at the, you know, from you know, for the entire run of the story. And I think that there is a very easy way to read this movie as being in that little subgenre. Um, I've always loved High Plains Drifter. I think it's a phenomenal film, and I think one of the best things about it is that amazing bit at the end where all these little weird things throughout it suddenly kind of pop into focus as as that little fade. As you can you know you can read that final shot as him just either 
not being visible anymore through the, the you know the waves of heat coming off the desert uh, ground, or him just disappearing back from whence he came because that's how he appeared in the first place. And in Pale Rider, it's much more overt. Overt, mm-hmm. very. It's very. It's very much more clear that this person that Eastwood is playing was murdered by the head villain and has come back to set things right. I think this movie may very well be, if not the first, because I doubt it's the first, I'm pretty sure it has to have been done before this movie, but I think that's what's going on here. That's how, the more I thought about this movie, the more evidence I saw of that being a possibility. Um... My favorite bit of my favorite bit of it being that he's never wounded, he's never harmed, and also, just yes, it, it you could say it's just a, a good uh, strategy to <laughs> keep everybody frightened and hope that some of them pick each other off, which they do, but also instilling fear is the way the, the way of the demon, the way mm-hmm. of the ghost, the way things are done. You make people's fears turn them into their own worst enemy. And so I'm not sure how many people have talked about this before. I did a I did a search. I was looking around trying to find I actually found some <laughs> I actually found some possible uh, October viewing because I found some from some uh, horror westerns I was actually unaware of. Uh, including a, a a TV movie from 1971. Yeah, I've, that's available through the old special antenna, I think. And yes, it's probably yes. out there on YouTube as well. I've that's a movie that I read about in um oh some random book about TV movies, and I can't remember the name of it now, but I really need to see that. Yeah, is that like Black Noon? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Sort of a generic western. Black Noon from I think like 1971. Yeah, but it's like. So, like I say, there the horror western is not you know there there are a number of them. I saw a list. I mean, the most recent horror western I can think of there was the burrower the burrowers from a few years ago, which was really good, and Bone Tomahawk. Oh, Bone from a couple Tomahawk, years, which oh is amazing. Gosh, so good. I mean, the burrowers is the burrowers is a monster movie and a really good one with a great cast, and Bone Tomahawk is just as vicious. You know, evil cannibal movie. Yeah, that Bone Tomahawk is the I think like the lost Richard Lehman script <laughs> that somebody found and put <laughs> Kurt Russell in it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, it was written and directed by a guy who's a who's a Western novelist, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen that guy's follow up film, uh, Riot in Cell Block Ninety Nine. Yeah, it's supposed really to be good amazing. too. Yeah. Really good too. Yeah, I, I I hear it's great, and Bone Tomahawk was amazing, but. The, the horror western is a, is a genre that's not, you know, you're not going to find, you know, 200 of them. You're not even going to find 100 of them. But there's some really interesting, you know, variations on that idea out there. This is a subset of even that, though. <laughs> because the idea of, and leaving it ambiguous, like the end of High Plains Drifter is pretty, and it's ambiguous. You can read it either way you want. You can read it as that character was a real person or if he was a ghost. Hmm. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch this movie and see if if Klaus Kinsey, if Bruce Willis talked to any other characters in the film. or Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> 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 I'll shoot you in the head. <laughs> it's the sixth gunfighter. No. Uh, <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. <laughs> but the, the thing about it, if you go back and rewatch this, keep that in mind and see, I mean, you might even see some other details that I'm missing. My favorite little bit of what, how, how did that happen? He leaves the water uh, canteen with his initials on it mm-hmm. in the wagon for the son to find and to think he needs to return it to Gary Hamilton. And that's what he takes and brings to his father. What are the... It just seems unlikely that Hamilton would have still had that canteen, considering that was evidence in his trial. That that would be in his prison locker of his goods. Right. So, that's interesting. We never see that canteen again. We also never see Hamilton... I don't think we ever see him with that canteen. Oh, we see the canteen at the end, actually. In, oh, at a, the end, yeah. Yeah, and in a great little moment at the very end where um, you are, Gene Hackman has it. Gene Hackman. <laughs> and um, the canteen... Akinbar. Akinbar, yeah. The, earlier, the canteen had been filled with whiskey. Yeah. And there's flames all around. The canteen gets shot, hits the ground, and liquid flame comes out of it as the whiskey spreads across the floor yeah. coming out of the canteen, which I thought was a, was a nice moment. It's a, it's a very uh, Roger Corman Poe film oh, yeah. kind, of, kind of sequence. Oh, yeah. Not to give too much about the ending away. So, so there's, there's, there's flames, which, by the way, some of those shots of flames at the end certainly seem to, to push. Or that was another detail that kind of pushed me in the direction of, is this guy a demon? <laughs> is this guy a demon? I mean, holy shit. So, like I say, it, it, the movie doesn't have to fall in that, you know, fall on that side of the ledger for it to work at all because it works just fine as a straight, straightforward tale mm-hmm. of revenge. That does We're, give it a nice, another layer to look at it. It makes me want to go yeah. back and look at it again. Which is, which, is a, which is a good thing because, let's talk about what we both think about this movie, I have always liked this movie. This time around, I liked it even, I liked it even more. I think it's because, I think the reason I like this movie more this time around is that I now have more to compare it to. When I first saw this movie, it was probably 20 years ago, or close to 15 or 16 or 18, I don't remember exactly. Somewhere in the early 2000s at, at the most recent. And it was... It was something that I, I liked, I thought was good. But now, it's not just having gone through and seen more of Margariti's films and his westerns most especially. It's just having a bit more uh, experience under my belt for paying attention to what a director and a story is doing in the context of the uh, you know plot complications, story structure, uh, the way, the way things are framed, the way characters are presented. I think this is a really tight, well-done little movie that um, has some neat surprises depending on whether you want to look for them or not. So I, I, I like it quite a bit. I came I came down on about a 7 or an 8 out of 10, but I, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy it. I don't, how, did you, how did you feel about it? Uh, honestly, this is, I think, the best movie we've watched so far. Of the Margarita films? Yeah. Wow, high yeah. praise. Okay. I loved it. I really, this was a movie as I watched it the first time, because I hadn't seen it before, um, and I watched it, it was like, why do more people not talk about this movie? It's hard, It's hard. It's been pretty hard to see, I think. I don't think it's a very common film. Well, I, and that I understand, but surely somebody would have, some enterprising Blu-ray distributor or DVD distributor along the way would have said, 
there might be some money to be made out of a movie this good. I think it was released in Germany. Um, because I think this was a German co-production. Mm-hmm. Which explains why there's so many German yeah. actors in it. So I think there's been a good German release of this film. As as there have been, there's been some German Blu-ray releases of uh, several of Margariti's uh, films that he made in the 80s. Uh, Commando Leopard and you know several of the Rambo ripoffs, the the Commando films that he made in the uh, in the eighties, because they were uh, like heavily uh, co-financed or completely financed in some instances by uh, German production companies. So maybe this one has been put out in Germany. I'll have to look it up and find well, out. I would honestly, I think just by reputation alone, more people should be talking about this movie. Just, oh, right, yeah, right, and it, right. it should be something that more people should have seen and more people should know about because I just thought it was fantastic. I would give it either eight and a half wow. or nearly a nine. I loved it. Um, but surprisingly enough, um, and I cannot remember the full name of the writer, but there's uh, one of those McFarland yeah. books, the Spaghetti Westerns book. Yeah, great and, book. Well, um, it's 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 really incomplete. It's an older book. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Well, the review in there calls it a failure. Which is weird. Yeah, you looked at that too. Yeah, it's like, and I was like, "What? Did, what movie did this guy see?" Well, because I wonder, did he see? I mean, there are crappy prints of this out there. Maybe that's what it was. And if this wasn't, if you didn't see it widescreen, and you didn't see, if 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 because I've some of the reviews I've seen online are people are talking about I couldn't really tell what was going on in some sequences, which means that they're definitely seeing yeah. a darker print. Yeah, because I had no trouble seeing. Yeah, what this was print going is on, this fine. this print is fine. But it wouldn't take much of a screw-up of darkening the image down to, to be... I mean, two-thirds of this film takes place in the dark, or, mm-hmm. at not, or I should say at night. So, yeah, if you don't have a decent print, you're not going to be able to, able to tell what the hell's going on in a lot of sequences. Yeah, I, I just thought this movie was just great. Everything about it worked for me. And uh, <clears throat> I would love to see a domestic Blu-ray of mm-hmm. this. Anytime, because this is uh, this is a movie that I think you're I think you're right. I, if you hadn't said it, I would have. Which is, I think this is a movie that would gain a, a if not necessarily, I mean, a, a, a big mainstream following. Definitely, there's a cult out there waiting for this film to just walk in the door. I totally agree. You've got so much. It's got so much going for it. Yeah. Already. I mean, the Klaus Kinski factor alone is something that I would make it saleable. To a mm-hmm. large degree, because you know, like I say, he was he he was he was mostly a character actor who would you know do four or five movies a year because he could breeze in, you know, shoot shoot on a film for a week or two weeks and be gone onto some other project. Yeah, and exact, and that's sort of what I'm saying. It's like you've got a spaghetti western horror mashup starring Klaus Kinski. Yeah, and yet nobody knows about this movie. Yeah. I just don't understand, and it's great. I really don't understand. Why this thing hasn't gotten more of a following around, you know, around you can, nerds uh, like us? <laughs> yeah, precisely. If you can seek this movie out, if you can find a copy of it, do so because I think that you can. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. If you've, uh, if you like spaghetti westerns, if you like uh, gothic horrors, if you like, um, you know, it's more western than horror, but those elements are definitely there. Mm-hmm. They're unmissable. And I'd love to hear other people's opinions on whether or not Klaus Kinski's character was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, you know, I could go either way. I I like to think he was alive, uh, but you make some good points, especially when it's like you think about the snake. Hey, there's one way out of here, right? And that's and the then, very that first exact moment is when they show up to let him out of to prison. let him out of there. So yeah. was he bitten and killed? And that's when it started. Huh? Could be. 
Maybe. Could be. Only right. Bruce Willis knows for sure. <laughs> Only Bruce Willis knows for sure. I, huh, I so much want to hate you. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks, hang on a second. And uh, we'll come back and let you know what uh, Antonio Margariti film we'll cover the next time. The ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit bmoviecookbook.com. Here's our own special hot chocolate. Extra creamy, rich, and delicious. Because we whip every drop frothy smooth. Gives it something special in the flavor department. Creamy hot chocolate at the refreshment center. Folks, thanks for joining us. Uh, Mr. Hudson and I had all kinds of plans in uh, 2018 for sitting down and doing more margariti films than we did last year. You'll notice that we failed. Just like the year before, I think we had those plans. (laughs) We had had these amazing plans. I have got so many, I've got plans for so many different Bloody Pit episodes right now that uh, I'm holding people off. I've got a Coffin Joe episode I need to talk to to, uh, Court about. I've got an episode on a, a British um, uh, film called Hell Drivers. I need to talk with uh, Mark Maddox about. Uh, I've got a show that I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to, to like form up something so that I can do a show on uh, uh, early uh, Mexican horror westerns. Speaking of mm-hmm. this particular weird genre. Uh, and, oh, and don't think I didn't notice that you cheated on me, you two timer, and uh, did a Margariti podcast without me. Which, what, what, what are you talking about? That's, no, no, where? What are you talking about? What, uh-huh. what film? Where? When? I'm not going to dredge up bad memories. <laughs> hey, I'm, that's, 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 not, that's not true. You're ta- are you talking about Monster Kid Radio? <laughs> I am. <laughs> it's a film we already covered. Okay, it was Castle of Blood. And, uh, uh, he, uh. He uh, he waved he waved money at me. No, he, <laughs> no, he did not Wait, wave money at that me. That happens in a podcast. <laughs> no, he did not wave money at me. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but yeah. 
got time for him and none for me. Yeah, I'm such. I'm, I'm terrible. I know. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I've been I'm, seriously. I've I've been trying. I've been trying to get back to. And also, I've I've got to sit down with Randy and get back to the '70s science fiction soon enough. People are starting to to actually like pound on the door and go, where the hell's the Zardoz episode? And I'm not sure if it's going to happen this oh, year or not. Are they really? <laughs> I'm serious. I've gotten, I've, gotten, I've gotten five different messages in the past month. People saying, wow, really looking forward to that Zardoz episode. I like, actually, oh, shit. The Zardoz fans, <laughs> and there pretty, are some. And there are some, and we're all crazy. Yep. So it's not a good idea to tease them, and I've been now, teasing Now, are you going to post any pictures of your Zardoz cosplay? That you... Uh, no. Oh. I might, I might post a picture of me as an infant running around in cowboy boots and a diaper. Pretty close to Zardoz <laughs> Which is pretty cosplay. close to Zardoz costume. Actually, but that's as far as I'm going to go. You should. <laughs> That would, be, that would be the perfect wallpaper for that show. No, no, that would that would not be the perfect wallpaper for that show. But that is something that I am I am just narcissistic enough to post on the internet. So yes, uh, that may happen. Nevertheless, would like to point out that the next time that well, actually, the next time you and I sit down to talk, we'll be doing it with Troy. Uh, well, in December, you and I'll be talking about. That's right. I can't believe that's not far away. That's not far away. This is October, my friend. I know. So we'll be sitting down to do our annual holiday horror this year. We're going to do Christmas Evil, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to that because I haven't wa- I haven't watched that movie since it came out on Blu-ray, and uh, it looked really good on the old Synapse DVDs. So yeah, and that's the last time I saw it was yeah. on the old DVD. I have, believe it or not, there's a Blu-ray I own that I have not had a chance to watch. I You're think. shitting me. I know. I know. I can't believe. How I'm, is that? possible it's it fell behind some stuff it fell behind some old boxes of cereal and i forgot i had it and it, was, I dragged it was it out. it was behind the booberry yeah, it was behind the booberry <laughs> and, and i thought i'll be darned that's, oh, that that's where christmas evil because i've watched all my other blu-rays i, I twice yeah probably watched them all twice <laughs> yes of course just of a course. hint folks if you are uh, someone like rod or myself mm. and you know, I haven't mentioned my wife, Lori, at this show, so I'll do it now. <laughs> yes. It's a helpful hint if you want to stay out of trouble with the... Uh, with the, uh, the beloved? The beloved, your better half. When you get something like a movie or a book that's wrapped in plastic, open it. Because <laughs> you don't want somebody to come along in three or four years and say, How long have you had that and you haven't watched it? <laughs> You probably don't need it if you haven't watched it by now. Oh, that's that's the that's that's the most horrific noise I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Are you serious? So just a little little helpful hint from me to you. <laughs> don't yeah. Now luckily though, my lovely wife would never do something like that. <laughs> he said, hopefully. Although we have had that conversation of will you ever when are you going to get time to get to all these? And I've said, quite honestly, oh, I'll die before I read all these and see all these. But I'm going to try to squeeze in as many, many as, as I possible. can before the old Grim Reaper shows up and takes me down. I know I can't take them with me. <laughs> That's right. I intend to try. But, uh, but I'm going to take them with me right now. I'm taking them Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the next time that Mr. Hudson and I settle down to talk about an Antonio Margariti film together, it's my turn to choose, and I have decided to jump us to the 1980s, and we're going to uh, we're going to take a look at one of his Rambo ripoffs. At least I suspect it's a Rambo ripoff. 
Uh, it's known under a couple of titles. If you look for it on the IMDb, you would find it under the, t- under the title The Last Blood, which is kind of syntax disabled. Uh, there's something wrong with that. I don't understand yeah. it. The Last Blood. It's also known under the title Tornado. And uh, from what I understand, it's available for viewing on Amazon Prime, which is probably how I'll end up watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, so those of you who are interested can actually play along. You can watch uh, Tornado by Antonio Margariti uh, on Amazon Prime. And, uh, but watch uh, And God Said to Cain first. Because it, apparently it's on Amazon Prime, too. And I hope it's a good-looking print. If it's too dark, then it's going to be difficult to see what's going on sometimes. That's true. And you never know. Just because it's on Amazon Prime doesn't mean it's going to be a good print. A good print. I've had that a couple of times. but Yeah, me too. I've given up on a couple of movies that were just terrible public domain-looking prints, mm-hmm. and they were unwatchable. But, boy, yeah. I hope that didn't happen with Tornado. <laughs> I hope not. Or The Last Blood. It's a film from 1983. Uh, it has a pretty good reputation, but we will find out. Yes, we will. Sometime in the next few months, <laughs> whenever we get to it. Now don't keep me hanging too long. I'll try. We'll, we'll, we'll do, we got Christmas Evil coming up, so... That's we'll, right. You know... I'm looking forward to that. I love I our little holiday tradition. <laughs> we have, what is this, our fourth year doing this? Third or fourth? Third? Third. Fourth? And we did... Um, Silent Night, Silent Night, Deadly Night. We did The Tales from the Crypt. Yep. Double feature. And New and Year's Evil. New Year's Evil. So this, so is, this is the is fourth year. Four. This is the fourth year we've done this. So, wow. Uh, we keep at this. This is little, a tradition. This is a tradition <laughs> at this point. Right? <laughs> you do something twice and it's just something you've done twice. Yeah. Three times, and you're setting a pa- you're setting a precedent. Four times, well, shit, it's tradition. It's your tradition. Now, now we got to do it, whether we like each other or not. <laughs> yeah, this sucks. Just oh, like well. inviting your racist uncle over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> we got to invite him. Got to invite him. Yeah, he's gonna say some stupid shit. But yeah. he's gonna wear that MAGA hat. <laughs> God save us all. <laughs> oh God. <sighs> Friends, neighbors, if you want to get in touch with us. If you want to tell us why we should watch another Antonio Margariti film, or if you think that The Invisible Chimp is something that John Hudson should shut the fuck up about. Oh, nobody's going to say that. You can write to us at thebloodypit at gmail.com and let us know. Also, there's a Facebook page for the podcast. Check us out over there. Uh, God only knows what I'll post over there because it just turns out to be weird stuff every now and then and links to the blog. So... Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for uh, checking us out. If you get the opportunity and feel the desire, uh, wherever you obtain this podcast, if it's uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the hell they're calling it, rate and review us over there, or at least rate us, because uh, the more people who know about this podcast, the more my ego gets stroked, and that is what I need. And you're telling me it. Seriously, though, um, I um, haven't done as many of these as Rod has since... (laughs) I don't get invited, but <laughs> no, um, you do not. The last show we did, or maybe it was one before, didn't we get like we got a letter from a fellow in Sweden, right? Uh, yes, yes. And that just the fact that you know I'm just sitting here at, in Rod's bedroom as <laughs> as I do, um, <laughs> whether we're recording a podcast or not, <laughs> whether Rod's home or not. <laughs> but the fact that we're doing this and a fellow in Sweden is listening to it just blows my mind so we would love to hear from you and let us know what you think it really does matter we really appreciate it 
it uh, it does our hearts good to know that uh, something that we're putting together, like like a couple of kids in a tree fort, <laughs> is actually <laughs> being listened to somewhere else in the world. So thank you very much for listening. Very much, yes. Uh, I am Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And we'll talk to you again soon. I swear we'll talk to you again soon. Very soon. Saddling up the street Saddling up the street Saddling up to me